0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 4th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. And as I said last service, it's good to have Mark and Cheryl Hoxow back after a good and needed break. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 23 today, so if you turn in your Bibles, we will be there. If you're new, we go straight through books of the Bible, and we just go verse by verse. And we are in chapter 23. Before I start, I wanted to do two uh, kind of important announcements or just plugs. Number one is uh, we will have uh, October 7th and 8th our first ever men's retreat, men's camp getaway. It's just overnight. It's nearby, actually at a at a local camp. And my hope is that all the men will be there. Uh, it's pr- relatively inexpensive. If If the cost of it is too much for you, please uh, let us know, and uh, we'll make sure that you're there, but uh, it's just going to be an awesome experience to be together for the first time uh, as a church, as opposed to being with other churches in in larger gatherings, and so I hope that you can be there. Please plan on being there. You can register online in the men's Facebook group if you're not there yet. Secondly is uh, you're going to hear a lot about um, Restore Snohomish, and that phrase, Restore Snohomish, is going to come forward. Uh, just over the next couple of months, it will become a more regular part of our of our culture and our vernacular, and that is really just our um, kind of extension or, or our effort to serve the city and to bless the city and to do so by connecting with already existing organizations and events. Uh, we certainly may have our own events, but the reality is Jesus is already working to meet and to help the least of these around us and uh, there's so many different things. There's not a, a real good system or way of organizing those things so that we can have pathways to go, here's we're going to serve, here's the actual need, here's what we can do. And so Restore to Home, which is our effort to collect those things so that we'll be more effective in serving. So uh, if you're not on Facebook or on our website, you can, you can find it and just kind of learn about what's going on. And there'll be just ample number of opportunities for us to serve and to give Uh, and to really bless the city and seek the welfare of the city as Jeremiah calls us to do so that we can experience welfare ourselves to the glory of God. So you'll hear that a lot. Um, But today we're in Genesis 23, so if you'd follow along with me, I'll begin in verse 1 and read the whole chapter. Here's what it says, Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath-arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of this field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place." Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that had named he had named in the hearing of the Hittites 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. And so the field of Ephron in Machpelah which was To the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abram as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And This is God's Word. Now, Genesis 23 records the first significant death really in the life of Abraham and, and, and this great patriarch since back in Genesis chapter 11 when the last death we heard about was Abraham's father, Terah. Now, Sarah's death at the ripe age of 127 functions as the setting for this chapter which really focuses largely on Abraham's efforts to secure a bearing place for uh, for the body. Now, let's be honest, Genesis 23 is not the most exhilarating and exciting text you will ever hear me preach on or ever read, nor is it teeming with easy to find life application. But, God, the Holy Spirit, found it necessary to inspire Moses to include this part of the story for our instruction. And as Paul wrote in Romans, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, including Genesis 23, we might have hope. So the purpose of even this story of Sarah's death is to give us encouragement and to give us hope and to build our faith. And we'll see How God does that. Now, the original audience, the Israelites, um, would have been the first to read this story, though it probably was told and they knew the story of Sarah and Abraham uh, as it was passed on through Oral tradition. But now Moses is writing it down, and they really needed hope at this time. After a miraculous redemption and freeing from slavery in Egypt, they now, as Moses is writing this, find themselves wandering in the wilderness, Wandering as aliens and exiles in a land full of their enemies. And at the end of Genesis 22, right before what I read in 23, they would have been reminded that Abraham was in a similar situation. That Abraham was a sojourner. He was an alien in a foreign land and he was not in his homeland. He had come and spent half his life growing up in the plains of Shinar, they call it, in the city of Ur, as a pagan city. And now he's been wandering on this land of Canaan and, and living in different places in this land of Canaan for 60 years. 60 years ago, when he was 75 years young and childless, he had caring for his nephew, but he had no children of his own, he was called out of Ur, to go to this land that he had never seen, and now he's been here this whole time. And before he left, and as he was going, at different times and in different ways, God promised to make him a huge family. It's like, look, you're going to be huge. Your children are going to be the number of the stars. Your offspring will be the sands of the seashore. It will be huge, and I'm going to give you a nation-sized chunk of land. And though he had at this time been gifted over those 60 years, many servants had many cattle and had acquired great riches, he had one child and zero land. Now with the death of Sarah, which is certainly a major event in his life, Abraham learns that God's promises are not going to be exhausted in his lifetime. Right? He's told you're going to have children and you're going to have many children. And he's had one child by this one wife. And now he's like, she's dead. How's this going to work out? The great loss of Sarah is an opportunity for Abraham to again exercise great faith. And that's what every great loss is. Every great loss, whether it be a loss of a person, loss of a job, loss of an opportunity, loss of a dream, any loss is always a great trial. And in that trial, there's opportunity for great faith and then also great temptation. Every loss in us, no matter the form it takes, triggers a reaction in us. Emotional, physical, willful, It naturally does that. And that reaction typically and often reveals what we truly believe. What we truly believe. Where we are truly placing our hope. What we truly fear losing. Beliefs. Deep-rooted convictions. Truth. What we really believe, despite what we say, is revealed in loss like this and revealed in our reactions. It's never necessarily a what we do question. It's a why are we doing that? What are we believing? In the life of Sarah, we're going to see, especially in Abraham's reaction to her death, what it means to live, as I'm going to call, exiles with eternal eyes. That's how we are to live as Christians in this world that we currently abide in. Exiles with eternal eyes. Now, Sarah lived such a mentality. Sarah was a beautiful woman in every sense of the term. First, as you look at Sarah's life, she was physically beautiful. How do we know that? Well, in her 70s, In her 70s, she was beautiful and attractive enough to be pursued by the king of Egypt. In her 70s, right? The pharaoh, who pretty much could probably get any wife he wanted, he sees Sarah as like, mamma mia, right? 70-year-old hottie. In her 90s, 20-plus years later, she was still beautiful enough for another king to have the same reaction, like, bam, look at that girl. Sarah is a beautiful woman, physically. But what we see later in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, is that she was more than just beautiful on the outside. She was an incredibly beautiful woman on the inside. She had a beautiful, beautiful faith. Now, we speak often about the faith of Abraham. Because the Bible speaks a lot about the faith of Abraham. But there are few, if any, other women in Scripture where the Bible explicitly commands women to emulate the example of. Sarah is one of those women. In 1 Peter 3, Sarah is actually described as one whose beauty is found in the hidden person of the heart. She is described as the example of a holy woman who hoped in God. That was where her beauty came from. And you go, wait, how do we know she hoped in God? Well, consider what we know about her life, and we only know about her interactions and from where she was called out of Ur with Abraham. From the first moment, right, she followed Abraham when he left her family her hometown, their hometown, everything they knew and said, let's go to this place. God's told me to go to this land called Canaan. Where's that? It's that direction. I'm not sure. I've never quite seen it. It takes quite a bit of faith to believe in that. What? God spoke? God's never spoken to you. You have some idea that God told you to do this? Yeah, he He came to talk to me. We need to go away from everything that's comfortable and secure for you, and go over there. And there's no record of her saying anything. It reminded me of when, um, and I'm not trying to compare my wife with Sarah. Um, she's certainly beautiful in every sense of the way. I love you, babe. But it's this idea of, I remember when I hinted to my wife, hey, I think I might be called to be a pastor. You want to know her reaction to that? No. No. And that's it, new conversation, right? It was a pretty crazy thing. I was high school teacher, loved my job, summer's off, fun. I'm like, yeah, I think I might be called to be a pastor. I didn't even talk about church planting yet. That was a whole other level of fear. She didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand what that meant. I, okay, yeah, well, first we're going to gather in my home. We kind of gather around. I'll just kind of teach stuff. And then when we get really big, we'll go into our garage we will line it with black plastic it'll be rad right i'll ask the neighbors for lawn chairs and they'll think what are you doing singing songs to jesus you cult leader right it didn't sound really exciting to her it sounded terrified and and over time and it was not a huge length of time it became a desire of her heart and a call for but she wasn't putting her hope in me like I had made plenty of mistakes in, that, in our marriage up to that point, And for me to go, hey, I got this idea, wasn't a brand new thing. But she was not hoping in Sam, just as Sarah's not hoping in Abraham. She has a hope beyond her husband, a hope in the Lord. You look at the rest of her faith, if you will, and her hope, right? She agreed when Abraham concocted the you're my sister plan. Right? Twice. Imagine this. She said nothing when Abraham came and said, yeah, God came to me again and he told me we have to mark the covenant so uh, I'm going to cut the tip of my penis off and every other male in our family. You okay with that? Like, what? Right? says nothing. That would be an interesting conversation. God spoke again. And then even, and we're not told, she remains silent when Abraham is told, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go sacrifice him on the mountain. It's possible Abraham was like, yeah, I just want to have some time with the boy Isaac and I can go camping. See you later, right? But what if Abraham told her? What if Abraham shared with her exactly what God had said? And she said nothing but hoped in God. Not hoping Abraham wouldn't do what he said he was going to do, but hoped in God just as Abraham hoped in God. She had a beautiful faith. And she had a, a faith that is most characterized by hoping in God against what she could see, what she could imagine, and, and what she could measure and even know. And certainly like Abraham, Sarah made her mistakes. She certainly laughed when God told her about promises. She, she abused and treated Hagar harshly. She made her mistakes but she was a woman who lived by faith, not in what amounted to a very unfaithful husband in terms of if he just screwed up often. She lived by faith in a faithful God who could be trusted, even if her husband made mistakes. More than that, though, she didn't just live by faith, she died in faith. Hebrews 11 is, is this great chapter in the Bible that has all these, it's kind of the, the history, if you will, or the record of faith, of all these faithful people. And it has Sarah's in there. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. We're often talking about Abraham's faith, believing that God could do what, you know, his 90-year-old body was not going to be able to do, but Sarah believed. It continues, says, therefore, from one man and him good as dead. That's a nice description of Abraham, huh? He's good as dead, right? She wasn't putting her faith in Abraham. But from this one man were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, as God had said. And then it says, these, this will include Sarah. Sarah died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That gives you insight into what Sarah believed and how Sarah died and how Sarah saw her life in the life she was living. She never saw the fulfillment of the promises. Sarah lived and died with what I think is best described as an eternal perspective. Looking at the life beyond the life that she could see. Because in her life, Sarah saw like one half of one part of the fulfillment of the promise. She saw the birth of Isaac. That's it. But it was a promise for many children and a promise for a grand nation and a promise to bless the world. She didn't see any of that stuff. It was as if she was... Promised a house and given a two by four. Right? Here's the two by four. You're going to have an awesome house. And she's like, yeah. She had to imagine it. She had to she'd think about, man, one day this two by four is going to be a piece of this beautiful house. And because she had an eternal perspective, she could do that. And she could love that two by four. And value that two by four and place it. Oh, one day it's going to be a house. A beautiful house. A big house. But never actually see the house built. But still trust what she could see in the future. Trusting that God would build a house even if she never saw it in her lifetime. She had such a deep conviction in the, in the past promises of God. They actually dictated her future expectations of him. And that belief governed her relationships with everybody, including her husband. So she didn't necessarily freak out when he made a bad decision. Or she didn't worry when she couldn't understand something or didn't see it. She's like, God's got this. He's made a promise. And I'm not going to be shaken because I can't see its fulfillment. That's Sarah. But then you have Abraham. And Abraham... Uh, for a time, he mourned the loss of Sarah. And we know that's for a time, a short amount of time, uh, because it's given one verse. You don't have like three chapters of him crying and mourning and, and making all kinds of you know, uh, you know, monuments and things like that. It's, it's one verse. And I believe he mourned briefly. And I won't say it's briefly. He mourned for a time that came to an end because he lived with an eternal perspective. Now, the letter to the Thessalonians speaks about death like this and loss like this. Paul's writing to them about Christians who have died. And says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So Paul's speaking to these brothers who have lost loved ones. So I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep or dead. And I don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. See, the reality is that when you have an eternal perspective and you live with an eternal perspective, that doesn't mean you don't grieve at loss. It doesn't mean, as many do, like when someone experiences great loss, and it may be a loss of a person, it may be a loss of a job, it may be a loss of an opportunity, maybe loss of a dream, any loss, and someone comes along and goes, hey man, God's in control. Purpose is all things for good. You're like, I hate you. That didn't help, right? Thanks. There is a time to grieve. Even as you hold an eternal perspective, even as you trust God is not surprised and God is sovereignly in control, there is a time to grieve. Loss is loss. We must be reminded that Jesus Christ, right, the Son of God, mourned and wept over His friend Lazarus who had died, knowing that he was going to raise him from the dead in a couple minutes. He knew that. it wasn't like, hey, wait, I'll raise him from the dead. Like, it wasn't like that. But he wept because it's painful and loss is painful. And so Abraham does experience loss. He's not like, well, God promised. Okay, Sarah, move on. He mourns. The pain of losing something or someone you love is real and it should not be glibly dismissed in the name of God's sovereignty. Living with the eternal perspective means grieving, but doing so with hope beyond that loss. Grieving with hope means that the, the loss is genuinely upsetting, but it's not absolutely devastating. And why is it not absolutely devastating? Because it's not ultimately determining of how things are. To paraphrase one commentator, living with the eternal perspective means that eventually we must get on the business of living when life must be lived. In time, and I don't for a second to dictate how long that time is for the different losses we have. But in time, the reality of loss in life becomes overwhelmed and comforted by the reality of eternal life. That's the eternal perspective. That there is life beyond this life. That the pain in this life has meaning, has significance, has value. That there's more beyond what we can see and hear and feel. In time, I believe, governed by eternity, Abraham moves forward. And in doing so, we do learn that God's people must often suffer loss before receiving his promises. We see that the occasion of Sarah's death becomes the means, if you will, for God to fulfill his promises, which is, again, not the kind of thing that you would plan or maybe even desire. But the death of Sarah and every such loss, whether it be person or opportunity or job or dream, whatever, is used by God. It says, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He gets up after morning and says, look, I need a piece of land so that I can bury my family. And from this, a strange negotiation takes place, which kind of governs the whole narrative of Genesis 23. Though Abraham views himself as a sojourner and a foreigner in this land, they call him a great prince. You're a prince of God, great prince. And we learn a lot about how the world views Abraham's presence among them. They appreciate him, he has great relationships even though he worships a God that they do not. They tell Abraham, look, you're awesome, man. We love you. You're a great prince. You take whatever piece of land you need and bury your dead. But Abraham has a very particular piece of land in mind. And he knows that the owner of the field is there. He says, well, I want you guys to, to help me entreat Ephron, who owns this particular cave that I'd like. And Ephron, they're probably sitting there at the gate where all the elders or leaders of the city are. He hears and he steps up and they begin to negotiate this piece of land, in particular, this cave. And Abraham asks him, just name your price. And the first thing Ephron says, Oh no, no, no. You take whatever you want. It's yours. In fact, you can have the cave. You can have the field. You can have the rocks. You can have it. And Abraham's like, name your price. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Look, what is is 400 shekels between us, really? Just take it, right? And it sounds like he's kind of being gracious. He's not, okay? It's kind of like this, like, really, Abraham? What's a million dollars between you and me? No big deal. He's asking for an exorbitant price, and he's asking it in such a way that it's kind of sly, because Abraham's... Hurting, he's mourning for him to take advantage of that moment. Everyone be like, dude, really? You're going to charge him like this? Like, what's a million dollars between us? Big deal. And Abraham hears him, though. He hears what he says. And Abraham agrees to pay. He's like, you heard what he said. And he pays an exorbitant amount, too much money for this piece of land. And I think in many ways, as one living with the eternal perspective, we learn something from him doing that. That those living with the eternal perspective at times will willingly trust God, even though they are knowingly being wronged. He's being wronged. He's being unjustly treated. He's paying a price that's way too much, but guess what? He's not putting his hope in his ability to negotiate a good price. God knows. So I will only be wronged. And the other thing we learn is that even as we live with the eternal perspective, this passage, interestingly enough, if you were to Google Genesis 23, you'd see a lot of, of posts or websites come up based off of business dealings. Because Genesis 23 is used as a model for how Christians should do business with the world. And what we learn is that as you live with eternal perspective and you're you're engaging with the world, it's not just like, oh, I'll pay whatever. Sure, let go, let God. God's in charge, big deal. Okay, But it's not the other side either of like, I'm going to get my price. It's this open-handed to say, you know what? I'll pay. I'll even be wronged at times. But I'm not going to be stupid. I'm not going to be unwise. Living governed by God's sovereignty doesn't give us permission to do dumb things. And essentially, Abraham contracts or ensures that the contract is done legally. It's done publicly. You'll see him go like, everyone's seen that, right? I'm going to pay the exact sum measured by whatever. This is my land, signed over to me. And for the first time in 60 years since Abraham set foot in Canaan, on the occasion of a great loss, Sarah's death... Abraham has his first possession. The possession that God had promised him, which was all the land, he finally had the first part of that. God was beginning to fulfill his promises. See, Abraham at this point had one son. And he had been promised an entire family that couldn't be numbered, like the stars or the grains of sand can't be numbered. He only had one son. And he'd been promised all the land he could see. And he has one cave. But how do you think he looked at that son? He didn't spend his time engaging with that son, thinking about the millions of sons he didn't have. Okay, thanks, Isaac. You're just the first. Okay, where are the others? He loved that son. He cherished that son. And he felt the same way about that cave. He knew that he was going to get more land, but he didn't spend his time dreaming about, thinking about all the things he didn't have. He was grateful for this cave, for this field. He valued it. He loved it. It was the possession that God had given him. It was special. Out of all this land, this big circle of land that's Canaan, he's like, see that dot right there? That's mine. God gave me that. That's living with an eternal perspective. Beginning to understand or see what you have, even if it's small, as a gift from the Lord. And every small victory and every small gift is something to praise God. This is a cave that eventually uh, Abraham himself will be buried in, Isaac will be buried in, his wife will be buried in, and it will go on. Today, it's a cave that actually uh, is uh, a mosque is over this location. It is a very sacred sacred place in the Middle East. Now, the temptation for all of us is not really to live like Sarah or Abraham. I think our greatest temptations as Christians is to say we believe in eternal life, but live as if this life is the only one there is. The enemy and our flesh wants us to believe that this is all our home, that this is all that matters. And therefore, we fear losing it or we seek to get as much as we can because there's nothing else. There is no afterlife. We begin to live, and wrongly so, as permanent residents as opposed to what the Bible calls us alien residents. Now, much of our difficulty in daily life, I believe, is rooted in the fact that we live without an eternal perspective. And as such... We only invest in this life. We work for reward in this life only. We sacrifice for this life only. We view suffering and trial as only meaningful in this life only. We even seek joy in this life only. Essentially, when you live without the eternal perspective... You essentially live like a functional atheist who believes that hope is here. And anything you hope in here, given enough time or events, can be taken away. That's what a functional atheist has. Only this life. And it's foolish. Jesus spoke about this in the Gospels in Luke chapter 12. And I stumbled upon this passage just as I was studying. I thought it was very appropriate. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, he's telling the story um, about a rich man. And he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Interestingly enough, he's only talking to himself here. He's not talking to a community. He's not talking and asking for wisdom. He talks to himself often. It says, and he said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build larger ones. And there, I'll store all my grain and my goods. And then he says, I'll say to my soul. So I have a guy speaking to his soul, which is odd. But it reminds us is that as we view possessions and stuff in this world, we're talking about That's a spiritual conversation. He says, I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, there are many of us here, young, middle-aged, single, married, retired, who are building up huge silos full of good things, family, achievement, lifestyle, and you're not mindful of eternity. You're thinking only about this life. You're thinking only about what you can build here. That's foolish. That's foolish. See, if, if this life is all there is, that has a huge impact on your life if you, if you live with that perspective. Because you'll begin to expect God's promises and God's blessings to, to come in this lifetime and only this lifetime. And when they don't, When those promises are not fulfilled, you'll either despair that you didn't have enough faith, or you reject God for being unfaithful. If this life is all there is, you will view God's promises as dependent upon people, and you will spend your time manipulating and even blaming or using other people you believe are hindering the fulfillment of what you deserve in this life. If this life is all there is, you will live great fear, believing that that one or two bad decisions you made ruined it all for you. If this life is all there is, your life, our lives, will often become governed by that one big loss. That one big loss we had in our life. That loss of that person, the loss of that job, that loss of that opportunity. It'll be governed by that. And you will never, ever, actually be able to go onto the business of living and live in the fullness of the life that God has for you here. If this life is all there is, it's likely you'll never be grateful for the small things you get from the Lord, the small possessions of you have, because you'll always be thinking about the things you don't have the money you don't have, the achievement you don't have, the education you don't have, the person you don't have, you'll never be grateful for what you do because you think this life is all there is. But the truth is, this life is not all there is. That this is not our home. And when you acknowledge that, when you begin to declare that, okay, I am a stranger, not that I'm strange, but you might be, I'm a stranger and an exile here. That there is another life. You will begin to live with the eternal perspective. This is exactly what Sarah and Abraham lived by. Where Hebrews ends talking about Sarah and saying that we are strangers and exiles. That's how she died. It continues in verse 14. Here's what it says. For people who speak thus, for people who declare, okay, this is not my home. I'm an exile here. I'm a sojourner here. I'm a stranger here. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, for Abraham was Ur, for you like, well, I used to live in California. This is not my homeland. So if you say, I'm an exile here, like, you could go back to California, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Abraham and Sarah were talking about because it says they would have had opportunity to return. They can go back home. But as it is, what they're really talking about is they desire a better country, the Bible says. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, the Christian lives a totally different life than those of this world as they're in the world. The Christian lives with a hope that can never be taken away, even if they never see the greatest dreams that they wanted fulfilled. They still have something secure. They hope for a better country where everything that they desire will be fulfilled in Christ. Hoping in a better country and a heavenly life actually gives meaning and direction to our actions in this country, in this earthly life. See, the eternal perspective gives us perspective. Particularly, the eternal perspective keeps loss in perspective. Because nothing is lost in Christ. We believe in a God who saves. We believe in a God who's never surprised. We believe in a God who is sovereign. So no loss is outside of His control, regardless of how painful it is. I'm not trying to minimize that. But the eternal perspective keeps loss in in perspective. I'll never forget a statement that came out one day. I said, look, when, when we're in heaven for 70 million years with Jesus, I just picked that number. It's a long time. When we're there a long time, the greatest successes you've had in life are going to feel like having won the first great checkers championship. Yay for you, Right? And the greatest losses that we had in that 70 years of life or how much time we had are going to feel like stubbing your toe. That's the perspective. Right now it doesn't feel like that, but it will. The eternal perspective helps us keep loss in perspective, and the eternal perspective helps us keep injustice in perspective. It's not that we desire to be wronged, but you're going to be wrong, just as Abraham was wrong, and that doesn't devastate you. Because we believe in a God who judges. We believe in a God who will take vengeance one day. We believe in a God who does know and will reveal the truth of all thoughts of all men. And so I will be wronged because I trust in a God who judges. And I also believe the eternal perspective helps us keep possessions in perspective. There is a God who promises blessing and inheritance in the next life. And at times, we get to experience that prosperity now. But I guarantee you, in Christ, we'll experience the fullness of it then. And so I don't hold on to anything too tightly. I don't seek anything on earth too greatly because it's all going to burn up. And I'm going to be with Christ and not care about any of the stuff I had. The question I think we end with is, how do you live this way? That sounds great having that kind of perspective as I go forward into life. Well, I believe you must be convinced first that God's promises extend beyond this life. You must believe, quite simply, that there is life after death. And that's only possible if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ see, in speaking to the Sadducees, who were people who loved God but didn't believe in the resurrection, Jesus himself rebuked them. And he said, As for the dead being raised, you guys, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, right, he's talking about Exodus chapter 3. Moses speaks, well, God speaks through to Moses from the burning bush. He says, Have you read that where God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead but of the living. Abraham is dead but he's alive. Isaac has died but he's alive. Jacob has died but he's alive. There is a life beyond this life. There is another life to come. And the resurrection is the key to believing that. Genesis 23, interestingly enough, is a transition chapter. And there are several throughout Genesis and even as the Bible goes on. By transition, I mean you have the death and the closure, beginning with Sarah. and Abraham's going to die in a couple chapters. And then, if you will, the rise of Isaac. And eventually, Isaac will die. And you'll see Jacob come up. And then Jacob will die. And you see his sons, particularly Joseph, come up. And you see this this cycle that repeats throughout Scripture where there's great loss and then great resurrection. And great loss and then great resurrection, climaxing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what this reminds us of is this. There's a larger story going on that isn't just centered on our life. And that as we go through these cycles of loss and resurrection and loss and resurrection, we're reminded that one day there will be a final resurrection where we'll be with Jesus and the story will be complete. And Jesus leaves his disciples with these words. In John 14, he tells them this and warns them about this in hope that they would keep an eternal perspective. More than anyone, I believe, Jesus teaches us that there's hope beyond this life and to keep our losses and our gains in perspective. He says this in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Implying that you're going to experience trouble. You're going to experience loss. You're going to experience hurt and pain. Something that shakes you to the core a little bit. You're like, I don't know if I believe. And what does he say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. That's what he says. And believe also in me tells his disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. There where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. I love Thomas. Thomas said, we don't know. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know? And Jesus says plainly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This life is not all there is. And the path to the next life is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And every Sunday we come and we do this experience which you don't really do anywhere else. You come to this table, and it's a table where it reminds us and keeps all of our gains and losses in perspective. It's a table of a meal of hope. As we come to the table, many of us come with like, man, things are going well. And you come and you remember things are going well because of Christ. His death has covered your sin. So let's boast in him, especially when things are going well, and not boast in ourselves. And for those of us that come to the table, and we are sitting in loss. We are sitting in a place where, man, I have lost this person. I've lost this experience. I've lost this opportunity. I, I feel a sense of loss. This is your table of hope to remind you this meal foreshadows a meal that we will have with Jesus in eternity where we sit with him and there'll be no sin and there'll be no loss and there'll be no pain. There will simply be the fullness of joy of being with God and Jesus Christ. So let us not forget that, a meal of hope. Let's pray.